If the sermon today was to have a text, it would be found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. At the end of creation, God saw, saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Last Sunday, we began a series on kingdom worldview. It follows our study in Matthew 7, the final part of the Sermon on the Mount, which tells us about the kingdom of heaven and what it means to be a part of that kingdom. The question is, how are we supposed to think if we are part of the kingdom? What is to be our worldview? As I said last week, a worldview is a set of assumptions that one holds about the basic makeup of the world. Because it is a set of assumptions, of presuppositions, these are not usually things we think about or we try to prove. We simply assume them to be true. Um, I read someone this week who uh, likened worldview to an operating system in a computer, um, except worldview is in our head, it's not in the computer. And the operating systems determine what we can and cannot do, the functions, you know, what we're able to do or not do. Uh, in the same way that worldview sort of determines or guides our actions as we live our lives. As I said last week, in this series, uh, I will seek, for the most part, not to prove anything, um, as much as to show you what the assumptions are if you think as one who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. Um, I may, in certain instances, like today, contrast a kingdom worldview with a worldview of others, um, not so much to sort of disprove or put down the other, but to show how it has infiltrated and infected our thinking so that and you know, we may have gone through the narrow gate, but somehow now we're on the Broadway because we're thinking like the world around us. I am convinced that in today's world, most Christians do not have a kingdom worldview. That is, their basic assumptions are not biblical, and that needs to change. I mentioned this last week, but just want to say it again, that um, in my experience teaching in the universities, my opening lecture has always been on worldview. I didn't tell you why that is the case. Uh, my brother and I went to UCLA together to get our PhDs, both in uh, history of Southeast Asia, and our advisor was going to be away for two, two years, and so he said to us, okay, one of you teach for me one year, one teach the next year. Well, Shelton, my brother, had finished ahead of me, so he taught the first year, and I thought he was going to do, teach the second year because in that year I got married. I hadn't finished my dissertation. Um, but then he got the job in Boise at Boise State University. So I had to finish my dissertation after we, Guy and I got married. And I was scrambling to come up with notes for my lectures. And Shelton lent me his and I saw that his first lecture was on worldview, and I thought, that's really intriguing, that's fascinating. And so I followed his lead, and I have been ever since. Um, he still does it all, more than 25 years later. It's the first lecture in his classes, and it is in mine as well. We both got the idea, though, I got it from him, but from James Sire's book, The Universe Next Door, a catalog of worldviews. That's, I think, when we were first exposed to the notion of what a worldview is. Last Sunday, we looked at the first question. And what I do is I present to my students 10 questions that if they answer these questions, 
they will then know what it is they assume to be true about the world. And the first question is, what is first cause? First cause is that which comes before everything else. It is the cause of all that has followed. And as I said last week, the issue for me when it comes to first cause, and the focus should be, was first cause personal or impersonal? Um, You can argue about what first cause was, but no matter what conclusion you come to, the question remains, was first cause personal or impersonal? If we accept that the universe had a beginning, what was there before the universe, and what was the cause of which the universe is the effect? cause and effect. Was it personal or impersonal? Well, the scriptures are clear. Here in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, the heavens and the earth. We believe in one creator, Father, Son, and Spirit, that is a personal God. Personal first cause with personal agency. It's not some impersonal force that happens. It is a person. Okay? But when I speak of someone being a person or a personhood, uh, what comes to mind, particularly when we think of God? Um, there are probably more, but I think at least three things come to mind. The first is will. The second is reason or rationality. And the third is love. During the Middle Ages um, in church history, we find that, in fact, there was a move to really focus on God's will, the will of God, his authority. He is the sovereign. This is usually associated with William of Ockham, Ockham's Razor, you may be familiar with that, who viewed the act of creating as an act of the will. God chose to create, and he was able to do so because he chose to do so. Um, And certainly, there are places in the Bible that would seem to reinforce this. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him. This seems to be just sheer will that God does whatever he wants. On the other hand, uh, one of his contemporaries, uh, Thomas Aquinas, said, yeah, we don't, I don't think it's will but reason. Okay? It's not authority so much as reason that God thought this out uh, before he brought the world into being. I would argue they both missed the point. They both missed the point. Okay? And that is that God created out of love. Um, in Occam's case, we see a shift from a God of God as love to God as will. And I would argue that the infinite personal God created out of love rather than will or reason. As we have seen, the life of the triune God, in the life of the triune God, the Father freely gives himself to the Son, and yet he remains fully and eternally the Father. And the Son is eternally and fully the Son. And the Son gives himself freely to the Father. And yet he remains the Son. And the Father remains the Father. And this is true also in the life of the Spirit. There is this giving and receiving in the Trinity. It's something that is on some level beyond our comprehension. But there is this interaction. You have the three persons of the triune God who are acting and giving each other and receiving from each other freely. This giving and receiving we call life. It's what life is. It may also be known as love. And it is out of this life and this love that God created. 
one writer put it this way, the Trinitarian grammar of creation teaches us that God creates freely from the depths of God's character as one who lives by giving. Thus God's living and God's loving are one. But we live in a broken world and it's no longer giving and receiving that drives us, but it's rather taking and keeping. Um, that's, That's how we think, that's how we act. This means that rather than accepting life and love, the giving and receiving, we choose the only other option and that is death because we want to take and we want to keep. Just a side note, something to think about. If we say that God created out of will or out of reason, you could make the case that he would then be bound by his will and by reason. More on this in a bit. The question of vocabulary, something we need to straighten out. Um, When I lecture on worldview, I give my students 10 questions, as I mentioned earlier. The first question is, what is first cause? The second is, what is the nature of reality? Chaotic, orderly, is it material? Is it immaterial, spiritual? Is it a combination? Uh, Is it primarily objective or subjective? Um, Does reality have a purpose that is built in? Or does reality have no purpose whatsoever, and then we are the ones who have to come up with the purpose of life? The fact is that reality is another word for nature. And nature, as we've seen, has become the word that replaces creation. There's nothing wrong with using reality or nature, but when in fact they push creation aside, something, uh, something happens. Um, and it's not just a matter of vocabulary. If we speak of nature rather than creation, we turn away from the conviction that this world can be understood and explained apart from God. We don't need the creator, we have nature. It is to turn to the conviction that the world is self-explanatory. We don't need someone outside the system, it's a closed system, we can figure this out ourselves. For many people, the shift from creation to nature is in fact It involves the belief that the world is all there is and all that there ever will be. Well, if it's a closed system, what is first cause? Well, there can't be any. There can't be any. So we could argue that both reality and nature are words that can be used to replace creation. And as such, they deny the reality that God is the creator. There's something else, and I hope I can convey this clearly. Even the word creation itself may give the wrong impression. As one writer put it, we misuse creation as a noun denoting a collective of things rather than the continuing work of God as God keeps this world in existence and works for its redemption. Creation is the continuing work of God. You may remember what Jesus said in John 5 after healing on the Sabbath. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. I think that rather than speaking of creation, it might be more helpful to speak in terms of 
creating. We do this with other words, by the way. Um, let me just say, creation implies a finished product. Okay, there is creation. God has done creation. Creating implies ongoing activity, that God is still at work in his world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If, this, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I think our thinking needs to be changed. It needs to be reoriented. And it might be a question of vocabulary. Um, let me give you some examples, and this might help. Um, we are in this place, and we call this a building. Well, why don't we call it built? It's completed, right? Why do we call it building as though there's something still going on? Um, can also speak of writing, like I can't read your writing. That is, what you've written, that's completed, and yet you say, I can't read it. Or, I love that painting. We have some paintings up here. Um, but painting implies that something is still happening. Um, I think this will demand something of us, but it would be helpful of us to speak of God's creating um, when we are speaking of God's creation, to remind us that creation is not a finished product. God is in the process of redeeming his creation. And there's something else. We need to understand God's work of creating as participants, not as detached, like here I am, I'm looking at God's creation and almost taking on this omniscient point of view that I know things about creation. We're part of creation, okay? We are part of creation, and we need to understand that. As I said last Sunday, we saw that first cause was personal. And what was or what is the effect? Um, I think it is also personal. But something that allows us to view creation in an impersonal way is when we shift from creation to nature to reality. We speak of animate and inanimate things. The scripture is quite different than us on this. In Leviticus 18, and if you defile the land, it, the land, will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. In Luke 19, as Jesus has come into Jerusalem, when he came near the place where the road goes down uh, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Like, well, that's not possible, is it? They're inanimate. They don't have life. And yet I would argue that the biblical view of things is quite personal 
And in the modern world, we have made it quite impersonal. In Romans 8, Paul writes, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. If first cause is personal, the cause, the effect should be as well. But how do we, here we are, November 21st, 2021, how is it that we who are supposed to be kingdom, or citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how do we view God's creation or God's creating? So I mentioned that at the end of the sermon last week, uh, in the scientific age, the scientific revolution, three metaphors came up uh, for nature. Uh, book, clock, and laws of governing. I'll go through these quickly, but I want to focus on one. The metaphor of creation as a book, that's not new. That doesn't happen during the scientific revolution. As early as the third century, uh, Christian theologians were speaking of this, um, that we have two books. We have scripture and then we have creation, that they both tell us about God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. And then again, in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, so that men are without excuse. Paul says, look at creation, and you know, in fact, that God has eternal power, and he is divine. He has a divine nature. One of the reasons I think that this came about was they saw nature, creation, as something that could be understood in the same way that you can open scripture and read it because we're made in the image of God. We have the ability to reason. We can understand it in the same way uh, human beings can look at creation and learn and come to understand things. Both men and women made in his image have rationality. They are equipped to read and understand both scripture as well as creation. It's the second metaphor, though, that I want to focus on, and that is the metaphor of the clock. I think it's been the most influential by far. Before mechanical clocks were invented, there were various ways of marking time. There were sundials, there were water clocks in which you have a container of water and there's a hole and there were markings on it and that would mark the hour as the water would come out. And then you had candle clocks, the same principle. You have a candle and you have marks on it would mark the hours. Um, It's in the 14th century, though, that the first clock is invented. And over the next few centuries, significant improvements were made. In the process, as these improvements are made, and so now you can keep time more uh, more accurately. By the way, in some of the first clocks, they were off by two hours every day. But that was like far better than anything that had happened before. But with these improvements, um, nature, which had now pushed aside creation began to be seen as a giant clock with all these mechanisms. And isn't it amazing how these things work? And because in the scientific revolution, the first people involved are Christians, they see God as the giant clock maker. He's the one who makes this giant clock that we call nature. 
Now, I want to be clear that the first people who spoke of this thought, in fact, that they were exalting God in the same way that William of Ockham, you know, focusing on God's will, his intent was to say God is sovereign, God is in charge of everything. But in the process, some very dangerous things happen. This view, among other things, opened the door to seeing creation as being governed by laws. And that's the third metaphor, by the way. You have book, clock, and laws. So in the same way, you wind up a clock and it, it does certain things and wheels turn and all that, and that's how it keeps time. That's how creation was seen. This view of God, however, as the clockmaker had unintended consequences. Several things. The first is that nature and all things in it, for the most part, became depersonalized, disenchanted. By the way, if you Google, if you look up disenchantment, um, you will usually find the following. A feeling of disappointment about someone or something you previously respected or admired. Disillusionment. It's interesting. But if you dig deeper, you will find that in philosophy and sociology, it is the supposed condition of the world. Once science and the Enlightenment have come in, they've pushed aside religion and superstition. Max Weber is the one who really spoke uh, about disenchantment to describe this is the way the modern world is. It is disenchanted. There's no enchantment anymore. We understand or we can understand almost everything. Another consequence of seeing the world as a clock meant that we saw all of nature as purely material. That is, it can be observed, it can be measured, it's perceived by the senses. And then, building off of that, nature and all things in it began to be viewed in mechanistic terms. Since they're all purely material, they can be observed, everything began to be seen as a machine. Wendell Berry, in the beginning of his book, Life is a Miracle, writes this, the most radical influence of reductive science has been the virtually universal adoption of the idea that the world, its creatures, and all the parts of its creatures are machines. That is, that there is no difference between creature and artifice, birth and manufacture, thought and computation. Our language, wherever it is used, is now almost invariably conditioned by the assumption that fleshly bodies are machines full of mechanisms, fully compatible with the mechanisms of medicine, industry, and commerce, and that minds are computers fully compatible with electronic technology. He goes on to say this may have started as a metaphor, but in the language as it is used, it has evolved from metaphor through equation to identification. Ken Myers, uh, Mars Hill Audio Journal, a ministry that we support, says many thinkers, this includes C.S. Lewis and Jacques Ellul, have warned about the influence of ubiquitous technology on our imagination. The persistence of mechanistic thinking is one such effect. Virtually all aspects of social life, okay, and social you would think would not be material, but all aspects of social life, personal relationships, and even religious experiences are commonly imagined in mechanistic terms, as in Washington is broken. We need to jumpstart the economy. 
That event was a great networking opportunity. Much thinking about creation, not to even go beyond and talk about our relationship with the Creator, suggests the machine serves as more than a suggestive model that illumines an aspect of reality, but it's the way things really are. That is the worldview now for many people, for most people I would say, in this country at least, is very mechanistic. It's very mechanistic. And even the things that you're like, come on, you know, personal relationships, these aren't mechanistic. And yet the approach taken, the thinking behind it is in fact that they are. Ken Myers goes on to say, we can't avoid the use of metaphors in our thinking, but we can try to avoid the use of inadequate or misleading metaphors. The metaphor of the machine is a deeply attractive one within many spheres of modern culture, and probably for the reason Barry suggests. He's the one who had quoted a Wendell Berry. Um, sociologist Craig Gay has observed that, quote, the desire to maintain autonomous control over reality by rational technical means is particularly central to the modern world. Put differently, we might say that a modern society is one in which the prevailing conception of the human task in the world is that of mastery by way of systematic manipulation. And all of this, I would argue, is because one of the other consequences of thinking the world as a clock is that the clockmaker no longer becomes necessary. That those initially said, yes, God made the world, he wound it up, and now he's left town, and he's just waiting till it all winds down. For those who believe in the creator, God is seen as absent. This is where deism emerges. He made the clock, he wound it up, and he stepped back. He's not involved at all in you know, how it runs because he made all the gears and everything and wound it up. And he's just an absentee landlord, if you wish. He put laws into place. This is why, by the way, the clock metaphor, I think, is more powerful than book or laws uh, because laws sort of support the idea of reality as a giant clock. I don't want to go too far astray, but there are passages in the Bible that seem to indicate that there are laws. But I think that's our misreading of it. Um, in Job, you know, 38 to 41, where God says, you know, he has said uh, to the sea, you may go this far and no farther. And that's like, well, that seems like a natural law. And no, God is always saying to the sea, you may go this far and no farther. It isn't a law that he made and like, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. You know what you're supposed to do because I've given you the rules. It's a very mechanistic view of looking at things. And by the way, if in fact the clockmaker is outside the clock, has to be, can't be inside the clock, then he is not able to interfere with its operations. For those who do not believe in God as the creator... The laws, physical and material laws, become the driving force. I find it really interesting that as humanity has pushed God aside, it's like we don't, we don't believe in the clockmaker anymore. Um, 
who originally was seen as creating out of will or out of reason. Um, Will and reason become what human beings go after, the will to power. But no one seems to go after love. God as the creator has will, reason, and love. Will and reason is what people run after to replace God, but not love. But we know that the God, the creator, created out of love. If we are, in fact, to be people of the kingdom, how are we supposed to view reality? How are we supposed to view nature, creation, creating? I would suggest two things, and we've seen this in the past. The first is we are to see God's creation, God's creating as a gift. Now, if we would be honest, there are times when <laughs> this is not our first, uh, our first thought, that oftentimes it's seen as more of a burden rather than as a gift from the creator. In light of economic difficulties, health problems, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Really, we want to see, Damon, you want us to see God's creation as a gift? But we need to be careful that we don't allow our circumstances to dictate, to shape how we think, how we view the world. How are we to view creation, God's creating? We are to begin by seeing it as gift. It is a gift that God is in the, problem, in the process of fixing, of redeeming. When we think of creation as a gift, if that happens, uh, we may do so without reference to the fact that God is still creating. We're like, yes, I believe in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created the world. We have no sense that God is still at work. He is still creating because he is redeeming. And when everything is said and done, we will have a new heaven and a new earth. And how is this going to happen? How is this possible? It is because of the work of Jesus Christ. He came to redeem the world. And therefore, if we are citizens of his kingdom, and he is the king, then we are to participate in that project. We are to view it as a gift. We are to view it as that which God is still working on, and we are participants in his work of redeeming his creation. So even the hard, the impossible, the nonsensical things of life, may become gifts because God is changing. He is redeeming his creation. We also are to see it as a gift because it is, in fact, God's creative activity. The one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit is life. This is life. The infinite personal God continues to work in his creation. The God who lives in relationship without beginning, without end, um, God did not need to create us, by the way. There is no need for him to create in order to be in relationship. But in fact, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were eternally in a relationship. And out of this relationship comes life and love. And God made the world and continues to create. 
God's life together is one of eternal, overflowing love. It wasn't as though God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit, they had a meeting like, yeah, what, what should be our next project? Um, that's, I think, a very rational approach. Or let's do something, an act of will. But it is out of the life they share and the love that they share that the decision is made to create the world and continue to work in the world. No greater gift can be given, and no one could give this gift except God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The second thing that I would suggest to you is that we are to view creation as a blessing. To receive creation as a gift means that we are dependent. It doesn't mean that we are to be passive. Okay? God blessed his work of creation, and that blessing calls us to be participants in that. Um, to confess or affirm that God, God's work is that of creating is, in fact, to recognize that it is a blessing. It is intrinsic to the meaning of creation. It is not only gift, but it is blessing. And we come to see that the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the only way, it's the only way life can happen, and it's the only way that love can happen. Otherwise, there would be nothing. And what we find in Scripture, when there is a recognition of God as the one who is creating and redeeming his world, we find praise, thanksgiving, testimony, and wonder. The psalm I read today at the beginning, Psalm 100, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. It is a psalm of praise. We live in a culture, in a world, in a civilization that views creation, nature, reality as primarily material. And more than that, material to be used. Even some Christians have strayed and they see the world, oh, God put this here for me to use for my own. And this is the taking and keeping rather than the giving and receiving. And then being human, which I hope we will see in the weeks to come, is viewed as merely a matter of mechanics. Whether it be physically, emotionally, psychologically, it's all a matter of mechanics. I am grateful for modern medicine. It has done amazing things. But in the process, we should not forget that if a particular remedy works, it is because God is at work. Let's not take a mechanistic view and say, okay, this is my body, this is what needs to be fixed. Um, I go to the dentist, get my teeth worked on, and somehow we lose sight that, no, God's right there. God is always in the process of creating and redeeming his world. Sadly, um, like most around us, we think in unbiblical terms. Um, a word for this dynamic is technique. That is that everything can be solved if you break it down into the component parts and into the steps. 
It's a fundamental belief that emerges in the 19th century that the human mind can comprehend almost everything if we break it down into its component steps. Uh, as I ask my students, uh, do you know how to eat an elephant? It's, you know, laughter, you know, one bite at a time. That's a very modern way, a very mechanistic view of viewing or looking at the world. Like it, is not, like it or not, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we tend to think in the same way. So that even the most amazing thing that can happen in the world, that we can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, has been reduced to steps. You have the four spiritual laws, for example. And the sense of personal interaction, of personal relationship, it's like we don't have it. We've, we've lost it. Or we are losing it. In some ways, we're not bothered because we like the fact that we know the steps. Just tell me the steps and, and, and I'll do it. Uh, and we view God's creating work in the world in the same way, sadly. And we are wrong. We are to view God's creation as gift and as blessing and as something he's still doing and will until the end of time. God's creating flows from love. One writer put it this way. The word became flesh, not as an instrument toward our salvation, but as an embrace of the whole creation in this one person, an embrace that redeems all creation. This is the action of love. Love that began before the creation of the cosmos, gives life to the cosmos, holds the cosmos together, embraces and enfolds the cosmos into the life of God through Jesus Christ. You see, it is not only love that brought about God's creation, it is love that sustains God's creation. It is God's love that continues to give life to the creation. It is that love that sent his son into the world. That is the good news. Jesus said, the good news, the kingdom is here. But do we think as kingdom citizens or do we have a very different worldview? Let's pray together. Our Father, we freely admit that there are things beyond our comprehension. To be human is to be finite. But there are certain things we can know and understand. We can know and understand that you created the world out of love. And it is that love that sustains it even to this day. It is your love that keeps our hearts beating, our lungs expanding and contracting. I fear we don't think in those terms. We think of laws. We think of the electrical impulses sent from our brains to our hearts to keep them beating. And in many ways, we've become quite impersonal, quite mechanistic. We view ourselves as machines perhaps that need to be repaired from time to time, but nonetheless as machines. 
And if that's how we view ourselves, how do we view the Lord Jesus who came and lived among us? We are your people, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. By your grace, may we think as citizens of the kingdom. May we have a kingdom worldview, a biblical worldview, and somehow resist the infection, the intrusion of different worldviews that surround us. We thank you that you created the world, that you continue to work in the world. You are redeeming it, and one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We thank you that you have given us creation as gift and as blessing. May we not take the view of taking and keeping, but of giving and receiving, and recognize that we're, we're part of creation, We're part of the project. You've called us to be partners with you in the work of redemption. We've talked about a lot of things today, and I pray by your grace, in the days to come, we would meditate on them, and may your spirit give us understanding. Thank you for bringing us together today. We're so delighted to see Dan and Lonnie and Feli once again. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense, moment by moment in the coming week, of your presence with us, of your creating and redeeming your world all the time, and that we are your children. Go with us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.